breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining me for another episode this week. And if you're looking for a voice of reform, a voice that breaches the chasm between the lands of theocracy, of Islamism, and the lands of Western freedom and liberty, this is the place to start. This is the place that you'll hear a Muslim that doesn't mince any words, takes his freedom seriously, takes my constitution seriously, and takes the opportunities and the freedoms and the liberties that I have to live in this laboratory this greatest democracy in the planet, in order to give back and begin to have the tough conversations that we should have every day in this country when dealing with a threat that not only is terrorism, but actually at its deeper, larger threat, could end up having a quarter of the world's population, the Muslim population, as its constituency. And every week I find topics that I think relate to countering Islamism and advancing liberty. This week is no different. I want to start on a little bit of a more personal note, if you will. And uh, this week, uh, my wife and I had uh, the pleasure of being invited to the opening of a large Islamic art exhibit that is making stops in six different cities across the country. And... You know, you never know what you're going to see when you look at Islamic art and the exhibits that are in the West and the United States. And and uh, this one was an exhibit. And I'll let you uh, Google it and find some of the details if you're interested. It's an uh, uh, exhibit entitled Wondrous Worlds, Art and Islam Through the Time and Place. And it's not really about the specific pieces and other things, but I... I I was just struck by one of the things that reminded me of why I do this program, why I believe reform is so important. We can get into apologetics about where Islamic art came from. Is it Islamic? Is it simply Arabic, Persian, Indian, Indonesian, Spanish, North African, European culture? Or is it intrinsically religious? I was reading one of uh, Ben Shapiro's quotes this week, in which he tweeted the following, just a matter of a day or two ago. The earliest and greatest universities in the West were established by religious institutions. Enlightenment values were rooted in religious notions of individual value and an understandable universe. And he put the hashtag expose Christian schools. Now, obviously, he was piggybacking on the hashtag that has uh, unbelievably been going after Vice President Pence's wife because she had the temerity to express her freedom in working for a private Christian institution. And the left and other political lobbies, if you will, are going after those values as if she didn't have the freedom to do that or as if she never worked at a religious school before, which she had for many years. But I think his Ben's tweet really remarks on this issue that I reflected on as I'm walking through an exhibit in Phoenix, Arizona at an art museum of Islamic art, which is 
what happened to the Enlightenment? What happened to recognizing the individual? And Ben's note about that the earliest and greatest universities in the West were established by religious institutions is exceedingly true for the West. Enlightenment values were rooted, as he said, in religious notions of individual value. Again, I, I find that America's laboratory of freedom is what it is because we have a government that is under God, that is developed by founding fathers and a society that is rooted in a very religious society, rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics, rooted in morality, integrity, character, and good deeds, and in belief in God. But what they separated themselves was the establishment by government of religion, not a separation of necessarily directly church and state. It wasn't to rid themselves of freedom from religion, but freedom of religion. And I think this is one of the nuances that is so key to the success of American freedom and liberty, and is why I do what I do at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. But as my wife and I were walking through the exhibit at the art museum, I couldn't help but think, at least I couldn't help but think, that yes, we can talk about the apologetics of what were the golden age, if you will, as it's called by the apologists of that time in Islam when astronomy, mathematics, philosophy, art, music, poetry, were all being studied and, and flourished in a diversity of ideas that has been lost in the last six, seven hundred years of Muslim-majority countries. Now, you and I here are having conversation week to week about whether that is a problem endemic in Islam, or if it's a problem endemic among Muslims, or if it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of both where Muslims need to reform the ideas that they have come to believe are Islam. But if you get back to the fundamental roots, you can start to have a faith that believes in enlightenment ideas, that believes in individual rights over the tribe, that disperses collectivism and defeats it in honor of individual equality and freedom for all, not just for Muslims, but for all of those on the in your country, in, in your, under your law, under God. And I think that it does have to be under God. Yes, there is no faith test for public service. But the root of these ideas comes from religion. And I think, at least for me, they do. They don't have to. For It's not to say that those who are atheists or who reject God do not have their own values. Uh, but at the end of the day, I like to believe that religions that have moral constructs like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, the major faiths have a central core of values that makes them innately good for the world, good for society. So when you look at the concept of Islamic art, I was struck by, and, and you know, you wonder when museums do these types of exhibits, if they are doing it simply to piggyback on the intrigue about the Islamic world and they just sort of throw a few artifacts here or there and don't really look at what the deeper meanings are. I don't think so, but that might be true. 
Um, now, were there religious connections? Yes, I think if you look at some of the calligraphy, the Quranic script, the prayer rugs that were there, there was. But for the most part, it was a lot of secular art. Um, some of the artifacts included hookahs, uh, drawings of, of women without hijab uh, that uh, clearly were not part of the Salafi fundamentalist understanding of dress. And there were a lot of secular, if not the majority of it was secular elements being non-orthodoxy, non-fundamentalist interpretations of Islam and Muslim world history. So what I was struck with was if you look around locally here, for example, is there a major push for people to attend this? You don't see it from many of the Muslim leadership. Maybe there will be once they go in and make sure there isn't anything that they find offensive. Uh, But that's not what art is about, is it? Art is about human creativity that even at times may offend some people. Art is about creating, being uniquely human, things that animals do not do, human beings do. We can create art, poetry, music, language, literature. Those are things that we do through communication and beauty of what is innately human. That's where our rights come from, human rights. So what I found fascinating is that you find that the rise of Islamism, the rise of theocracy across the Muslim world in the last five to 800 years has also seen the death, the decrease, and the abandonment of significant amounts of architecture, art. Yes, there's structures, edifices of mosques that have been built, but it's imitating art from the 10th, 12th, 13th century. Have there been new creations of music? And yes, I think obviously there's some, but the depth of literature and poetry has been want. Because you can't, without freedom of thought and consciousness against tyrants, against those who dominate and control your society, without that barometer of freedom, you cannot have genuine art. And that's why part of the Enlightenment part of the rise of religious schools was their ability to tolerate dissent, to tolerate criticism, and to abandon the tribe and defend the individuals. That innate in religious values for the West, innate in those values was the defense of free thought, the defense of critical thinking against the establishment that may include the church some churches' definitions, or may include the government. And that's why so many universities in the West have historical deep relationships with religious institutions. Because the, the, the stronger the ability to question authority, the stronger then became those who chose to believe their belief. And as I've said to you before on this program, I personally don't want to belong to a religion that doesn't have the self-confidence in in driving criticism and driving even a questioning of God or Scripture or anything and doesn't have that confidence to allow that questioning 
within its own existence. Otherwise, it becomes a cult. It becomes a forcible gang mentality. And Islam right now, if you look at Saudi Arabia, look at Iran, Afghanistan, most of them, Islamist establishment, even in the West, you criticize the imam, you write against them in the newspaper, and you become the enemy of Islam. <laughs> I had a debate, uh, a little Twitter interaction with Muhammad Elbieri, who was on Napolitano's Homeland Security Committee, and that was removed because of his radicalism. And he again... Um, stuck his head out in social media. Oh, why? Well, we saw this week there was an arrest of a cell of gentlemen that wanted to attack that small little town of Islamburg. They were plotting a terror attack to kill that small town. There are many of them across the country. I think this one was in New York. And thankfully, the FBI stopped them, arrested them, before they were ever ever able to hurt anybody. It might have been, I think, one day before the attack was planned. Well, Islamberg, as you may know, our good friend Ryan Morrow and others at Clarion Project have done deep research on the radicalism of that sect, the Islamberg sect that's connected to Jamaat al-Fukra, that's connected to Sheikh Jilani, and has done even paramilitary training on their camps, and it's a questionable peri-terror group, if not a terror group in training. They've not been arrested. We've Many have called for sanctioning against those groups, and it is valid criticism to do that. Now, does that say that vigilante individuals outside of Homeland Security should be attacking them? Absolutely not. They deserve freedom no different than the Nazi Party, the Communist Party, Socialist Party, or any other un-American, anti-freedom, anti-Western interpretation of American ideals should be treated. So Elbieri comes on Twitter and says that since this Islamberg was attacked or was on the verge of being attacked by terrorists, that Fox News, Megyn Kelly, and others that had specials and discussions about the radicalism of Islamberg years ago should now apologize. <laughs> and I responded, doesn't that sound like Middle Eastern dictators, where if the Muslim Brotherhood decides to commit an act of terror against the Assad government or the... Saudi tyranny and the royal family that somehow that makes the victims the regimes all of a sudden good people it doesn't make the terror correct or moral but it certainly doesn't make the target of it all of a sudden absolved of what their own tyrannical beliefs are and this is as if out of the playbook of the Middle East that somehow once a group is attacked and I, I said this is so typical of the left that all of a sudden, if Antifa attacks neo-Nazi groups, that would they expect Fox then to defend the neo-Nazi groups? I don't think so. Just because Antifa did it or vice versa. So this is the, the absurdity. 
the absurdity. And then Muhammad Elbieri puts out a a thing saying that uh, a tweet saying that he loved it when I was criticized by uh, one of the Western legal experts that questioned my own qualifications. And I then pointed out that that video clip he was talking about was spread by Nazik TV, a Wahhabi Salafi jihadi outfit that has millions and millions of followers and is one of the premier radicalization media arms in the world. And again, this is relevant because if you look at the world, too many people, too many people drill down conversations into binary choices as if there's either Islamists or dictators, as if there's either leftists or far right. There's no moderation, there's no principles of diversity, of ideology, of debate, etc. And I think if there's one thing I learned walking through an art exhibit that had some Islamic art in it from previous eras, it's to remind ourselves that at the core of human success is not only tolerance, is not only peace and, and an avoidance of violence, but it is a celebration of diversity of thought, of creativity, the creativity that makes us innately human, where for every five people we have 30 ideas. And when five people can't come up with more than two ideas, that is the end of humanity's existence. As I walk through, you think of all of the museums that exist in the Middle East. One, that was one of the first things that was destroyed in Iraq by the Ba'athists as they were being defeated by the American troops. One of the first things that was being destroyed by the radicals of ISIS and the militants of the Assadists and Ba'athists was to destroy the, the relics of Palmyra, to destroy the relics and museums so that they could eradicate history of the Syrian people. Why? Because at the core of human individuality is music, art, architecture, poetry, and human ingenuity. When you look at universities in the West that decide to invest in Dubai, divest in Gulf states, invest rather in, in these areas, and you, you find them building universities of science foundations, of engineering, of medicine. I always challenge them, why aren't you building schools of humanities, of journalism, of philosophy, of poetry, of art, music? Because those would threaten tyrannies. The beginning of the end of an Islamic state tyranny of Saudi Arabia, of Qatar, of Iran, would be a university that, that teaches and empowers its kids to study liberal arts, to study humanities, and to begin to write poetry criticizing authority, criticizing the establishment. That would be the end. That's what I learned at the art museum, is that all of you I know are looking for what are the answers to reforming Quranic interpretation. And we'll talk about that, and you and I have done that before. But... I think at the core, the beginning of the landslide of change will come when you start to have humanities education increase and, and begin to see more and more diversity in art, uh, 
poetry and humanities. That's why you should go see these types of exhibits. That's why you should celebrate these things. Don't try to find the, the, the minimalist uh, issues that may demonstrate this or that evidence of ossification of thought. No, I think if Muslims and non-Muslims can look back and say, you know what, this was a vibrant, vibrant society that had calligraphy and literature that was so deep and, and difficult to learn. The Arabic language is one of the most difficult uh, languages to learn in the planet because of its deep and rich vocabulary, making the Quran and its language one of the most difficult to understand. So rather than say that this is something elite to the few, which is what the folks like El Bieri tried to tell me repeatedly, relish, cherish the diversity, cherish those with the courage to stand up to the establishment, cherish those who question normative establishment of, of, of the thought that somehow political Islam and Islamic state mentality is the only way to think. Celebrate those with the courage and the leadership to bring forth separate groups, diverse groups of thinking. But we don't do that. We're still stuck in tribalism. We're still stuck simply making existences in the Middle East out of petro-Islam rather than out of schools of humanities and education. And that's why you don't see that many universities, real universities of enlightenment that are Islamic universities today. No, the Islamic universities are black and white places of regimented thought, of rigid thought, with little art, no music, no poetry, simply memorization of Qur'an and a, a anti-Western, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel dogma that is pushed while they're frozen in the 10th century. That needs to change, ladies and gentlemen. That needs to change. Next, I want to talk to you about what's happening in Venezuela and why does that matter to Muslim reform. So, why does Venezuela matter to the Muslim world? Well, I, I think when the president, and, and I've been supportive of not only his hard line against ISIS, but uh, of his frankness and our inability to solve problems militarily. Now, I've also been critical of a lack of clear clarity, if you will, on our doctrine and the fact that when it comes to defeating Islamism, we must advance and rigorously promote the ideas of liberty and freedom as much as our enemies advance and promote the ideas of political Islam, theocracy, and anti-Westernism, that if we don't have an offense— for our own ideas across the planet, being the leaders of the free world. Ultimately, we can only play whack-a-mole defense for so long, but that's been my criticism. But President Trump on Venezuela has been clear. He supported democracy from the beginning, and now as Maduro took over, ignoring the will of the people, President Trump's administration has been right on the money in rejecting the recognition of the Maduro presidency, the Maduro regime now, and recognizing Juan Guaido, Guaido as the Venezuelan opposition leader and now 
who the United States is recognizing as the president of Venezuela. I think this is a bold move. It's one consistent. And he even rejected the withdrawal, as Secretary Pompeo made clear, of our diplomats, that our diplomats would present their papers to Juan Guaido, not to Maduro. And we'll see what happens with that. So you can say what you will, as Eli Lake said in Bloomberg Opinion, about how chaotic Trump's foreign policy might be in other areas, but he's always been consistent, always been consistent on Venezuela. He froze the assets of the vice president. He has, uh, through the treasury and other branches of government, been consistent in putting pressure for Venezuela's bad activities and corruptions and narco-politics to end. The opposition's announcement this week that they would assume the powers of presidency was coordinated with the White House. President, Vice President Pence spoke with Guaido before the administration moved forward with this and voiced their support of him. Now, there, I think, are a number of learning points here, and we can get into the details of the Venezuelan situation, but the bottom line is, is this is about supporting freedom. This is about supporting the will of the people. The masses of Venezuela have seen the sham, the, the destruction of socialist economics, and their, their complete tanking of their economy and rejected the politics and the economics and the, and the severe progressive socialism of Maduro. Now you see the leftists in America, why couldn't they simply say, you know what, if they were smart, they'd say, you know what, his version of socialism, Maduro's didn't work, and he didn't implement it correctly, whatever they want to do. But no, they're actually taking his side, and yet if you look at countries, the only countries taking the side of Maduro are Russia, Iran, China. Russia, Iran, and China while the rest of the Central American countries are siding with the opposition. And I think this is an important element to note. However, you look at these democratic socialists here in America, and they have not spoken out in defense of the opposition. And again, I'm not one big on taking the side or even giving Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez any time. But she still has basically stood in defense of Maduro. Absurd. But what I do want to do is say, first of all, I did tweet, I said, for those of you who are calling for democracy in Venezuela, amen, brothers and sisters, amen. But if you try to make a nuanced argument that, well, it's good for Venezuela, but maybe not for Syria or maybe not for Egypt or maybe not for Saudi, that's baloney. That's hypocrisy. Countries, either their citizenry has right to self-determination or they don't. If they do, 
we might get it wrong. And I think as long as they don't have nuclear weapons, and as as long as they're not major, major threats to the region or others, that we don't need to have military intervention. We just prevent other foreign regimes from intervening and allowing them to have self-determination. So what I was taken back by this week, let's look at what Ilhan Omar's, the, the, the good new congressman woman from Minnesota, the Somali refugee who is clearly an Islamist by ideology, but nobody seemed to care. She tweeted out, a U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela is not a solution to the dire issues they face. Trump's efforts to install a far-right opposition will only incite violence and further destabilize the region, Congresswoman Omar said. She said we must support Mexico, Uruguay, and the Vatican's efforts to facilitate a peaceful dialogue. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Not only is this new congresswoman spewing anti-American hysteria, but she's spewing truly idiotic propaganda. Those lines that she talked about, uh, American coup. First of all, coup is military. This is a revolution. Her lines might as well have been lifted from the mouths of two-bit tin pot Islamist dictators who faced honest revolutions across the Middle East, who said, oh, this is a Western Zionist plot to to, to take over our country. Those conspiracy theories seems to be her default. Ding, 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 another sign of Islamism. That when in doubt, America's actions are evil. America's actions are conspiratorial. It's not about the Venezuelan people. It is about American policy. We somehow have the puppet strings to control what's happening, even though all we're doing is recognizing the full rights of a citizenry to self-determination. So this tells you everything you want to know about Ilhan Omar. And again, I think the policy in Venezuela, as much as it may not be consistent with what we've done in the Middle East, I think will allow us to remember and to rekindle what it's like for America to defend freedom in the world, to stand by the people who want democracy. Now we'll see what evolves and how far we will take it. When the Obama administration took it in Egypt, they ended up siding with the Brotherhood, which was idiotic. Yes, supporting revolution in 2011 was the right thing. But then supporting the Brotherhood because somehow they were quote-unquote democratically elected was nonsense. No, we shouldn't have supported a coup, however, in 2013 after the Brotherhood was in power. Then a coup doesn't make any sense because that was not the will of the people. In Tunisia, the Islamists were ousted by democratic election. In Egypt, they should have given it time. Just like in Iran. In Iran, there was an Islamic revolution that not only we did not support, but we had hostages taken when they were risen to power. But now over the next 30, 40 years, we have continued to fight against that regime as they have demonized the West and spewed hatred about us and about Israel and about every other state and faith on the planet that is not Islamist. But they will evolve out of that if their green revolution, if their new revolution takes hold. So 
countries and citizenries have the right to reform, have the right to evolve, have the right to mature. Venezuela is going through its maturation process as it realizes that dictatorial dictatorial socialism is an abysmal failure. And certainly the socialists in our government, AOC, Ilhan Omar, are going to declare the opposition to socialism far right, whatever that means. There's little evidence, actually, that the Guaido government opposition is far right. There's certainly going to be more free market, but not far right. The last thing I want to talk to you about is, and by the way, that should really explain to you everything you want to know about Ilhan Omar and her ideology. She really, within a month now, has shown repeatedly how radical, how Islamist, how anti-American she is, how anti-Semitic she is. And I think she's becoming an icon for America's clinic, if you will, and beginning to understand the radicalism of Islamists. I mean, that's the one good thing she's serving. Now, I don't think she's serving her constituency of 600,000 Minnesotans that she's supposed to be representing. But at least she's providing the rest of America a education on what Islamists in prime time would actually be saying and doing with their embrace of the red-green axis, with the left and Islamists, with their, their rejection of normative American human rights and values. Last thing, though, I wanted to talk to you about was, and regarding Venezuela, there's a social media issue. Maduro, Facebook, and Instagram were quick to announce that they decertified, de-verified their accounts. And all of a sudden, you see Facebook weighing in, showing such courage, (laughs) courage in de-verifying the dictator Maduro. Well, you know, hold on a sec. As much as I might feel good, and I, obviously Maduro is a, a corrupt tyrant, where's their de-verification of the king of Saudi Arabia? Where's their de-verification of the head of Hamas, the head of radical groups that we've been calling for for, for eons? Nowhere. Nowhere. So you can't sort of pick and choose based on the fervor of the day who you're going to de-verify. And not to mention, should, you know, how does the free world, how does the world itself then decide who can be recognized at the UN and who cannot? This is why UN is problematic. But at the end of the day, the leader's the leader until he gets overthrown. Yes, that we should have a League of Democracies so that we don't have to sit arm in arm with the premier of China or with the ruthless tyrant of Russia, Putin. We should have a League of Democracies. But that's a different question than whether when you talk about who the actual leader of Venezuela is, the bottom line is is. Who's running the government? There's a revolution trying to happen. There's an opposition that's trying to gain power. Yes, 
the American government. I think our government should reject the the uh, legitimacy of Maduro, and that's a process. But Facebook, once it starts to develop what then obviously becomes a political arm, and it's done so already, it already has blocked the free speech of, uh, you know, as social media groups have, uh, social media companies have done with the free speech of everything from um, Prager University to others. It's absurd. They just need to get out of that business. Will that be the Wild West? Have some rules about profanity, nudity, things that are obviously outside norms, calls of violence. This is why we need a Bill of Rights, an Internet Free Speech Bill of Rights, and we can have a major conversation about it. But to de-verify, again, you're not going to find somebody more an advocate of freedom and liberty than myself. But I think the precedent of Facebook, of Instagram, all of a sudden becoming the delegitimizers before the revolution's completed. Because what if Facebook ends up becoming a tyranny? And then all of a sudden they start delegitimizing democracy, democratic leaders, in order to legitimize up and coming Maduros. Just because they happen to be a private company. And there have been some movies that have shown similar things that were related to sort of the fictitious Facebooks, if you will. And you can look at those. It's a question worth thinking about. And at the end of the day, I don't have the answers for you right now. All I know is that there's a ton of questions that people should be asking before we start high-fiving and celebrating the de-verification of current quasi-leaders of major states and institutions no matter how evil or corrupt they might be. It's not the role of a sitting private company. Now the private company may want to give aid and donations and help to democratic oppositions that share their values. Yes, that's what we've been looking for Facebook to do. Help us reformers reject, stop donating, stop giving the leg up to Islamists, to theocrats. But don't deplatform them. That's a slippery slope that none of us want to be in. Another week, another enjoyable conversation with all of you. And uh, I hope we're just a little closer to making the world a better place, to understanding the threats of dictatorship, of tyranny, of Islamism, and the beauty of liberty and freedom. This is your faithful podcaster, Zudi Jasser, on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.